0: You are listening to Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Thanks to Raya Eyewear for sponsoring this episode of Holding Court. I've been wearing Raya since last year. During the pandemic, I started teaching more lessons than ever before, especially outside. Raya are by far the best sunglasses for tennis I've ever used. Check them out at rayaeyewear.com. That's R-I-A Eyewear.com com and use the code Patrick to get twenty dollars off your first pair. They are total game changers. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick Macron here and this is uh truly an honor and a privilege to have this man on. Uh, Pico Iyer is is one of the great writers in, in our generation really he's been he's published over 15 15 books into over 20 languages he's written for time magazine for many many years and and plenty of others including the new york times and i have to tell you mr Iyer, um having done a a little more homework on you just in the last couple of weeks uh, and learning about your life and what you've done and uh especially listening to your four ted talks which i think have already received more than 10 million views um we could go in so many different directions, but I, I know you have a fascination for many sports, including cricket, where you obviously grew up in England of, of, and your parents were both Indian. And, and, and I was, I was just so interested in your talk about ping pong table tennis, by the way, as well. But I want to ask you what you think about the game of tennis, first of all, and then we will go wherever you want to go, because I know you could go in any direction. Thank you, Pico for joining me. <laughs>
1: Uh, Thank you, Patrick. Really, I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be here. Needless to say, I've been watching you play and listening to you and watching you uh, call games for as long as I can remember, almost. So I never expected I'd get a chance to talk to you in person. Um, And yes, in terms of tennis, um, as you were saying, I grew up in England. So I grew up pretty much with um, grass courts, mm-hmm. and as you know, from having been there so often, for 50 of uh, 52 weeks of the year, it completely rains in England, so for <laughs> the two weeks when they're right. allowed to have sunshine, right. everybody races out and makes the most of those long summer evenings, and um, I also grew up, uh, as you know, but not everybody knows, really when I was a kid, Wimbledon was on round mm-hmm. the clock for two weeks, it seemed like the whole nation stopped, and... In those days, we would listen to that commentator, Dan Maskell.
0: Dan Maskell, and, yeah, sure. he would watch
1: Yes, yeah, you remember him. There'd be a 20-shot rally to say, marvelous. Or something like that. <laughs> I mean, right. very, very understated and sonorous. But, um, so I grew up watching Nastasi and Turiak and Smith. And before that, Rose and Newcomb and Labour and those guys. And I think tennis is really part of the fabric of English life. And mm-hmm. so I grew up with it just as a, a typical nerdy fan.
0: Now, um, when, when when you were growing up in England, I know you did your studies there, and then you came to the U.S. as well for some of your studies as well. I mean, was was it part of your growing up as a kid? I mean, I, w- did you participate in any other sports? I know I did cricket was in your background, again, coming, as your parents did, from India. And then uh, you now live in Japan uh, most of the time, and you've gotten into into table tennis. By the way, my brother and I, And both my brothers, in fact, I have another brother named Mark who didn't get into professional tennis. But we used to play ping pong in our basement garage growing up in Douglas Queens. And in fact, for many years, you know, because I'm seven and a half years younger than John, of course, I could never compete with him in tennis until I got to be much older. Um, I used to be able to beat him once in a while in ping pong. So we had some crazy <laughs> ping pong matches in our basement. I'll never forget. My dad used to yell down the stairway, just, "Shut up down there! Why are you making all that noise?" So we used to have to retape the handles on the on the paddles, you know, because we would throw them against the uh, the wall in the in the garage, you know, the brick wall, and break them. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear that about the McEnroe. But um, you, you know, did, did you ever play any tennis as a kid growing up?
1: A little bit. I mean, you'd be horrified were you to watch me and my friends, but yes, um, so at my high school and at my college, we had um, these grass courts, and we used it just as a way to enjoy those evenings when it stays sunny until 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the evening. We didn't really notice who um, who was winning or who was losing, but it was a way to seize those precious moments. Of uh, sunshine. And if I can just, you know, turn a question on you. Um, you know, I'm so inspired by what you just told me about your ping pong in the basement. Did you find playing table tennis helped you at all when you were playing tennis?
0: No, but not really, because it's such a different kind of swing in table tennis. And then I, when I really started playing with people that know how to play, I realized, you know, it's all about mm. the spin and about the quick little movement. And of course, tennis, you want to be a little more fluid, a little longer with your swing. And, you know, the timing is, it, is it, what the good part about ping pong for us was it was competitive. You know, so we wanted we like to be competitive, <laughs> so that it got our competitive juices going. It was great for me because it was as I said, my brothers were older than me, so it was something that I actually had a chance um to to beat them in now, one of the things, obviously you all know, your incredible writings about travel and it, it been it are so intriguing, but you know as tennis players we're we're so used to getting on a plane every week, you know week to week And for the last year obviously i've I've been on one plane ride to go visit one of my daughters in in Florida Um, and I know that you know most of what you have written about and talked about a lot of it is about travel and how the world has changed but um, so I can sort of relate on that on that from that side of it about you know tennis players just not being able to go anywhere we're used to jumping around week to week so just how is I mean we know how our, our lives has changed but how have you adapted and adjusted to this new world we're currently in
1: you're right. It's like suddenly being airlifted into a new country where we don't speak the language, our clocks don't work, we don't have the currency. I think I've been really making the most of it and seeing the ways in which it opens up opportunities um, I would otherwise never have. For example, my mother is 89 years old and she's in um, California and I got to spend 200 straight days with her last year, which hasn't happened wow. since I was eight years old. Um, I've been taking walks around the neighborhood, both here in Japan and in California. And, of course, seeing that there are things in both places that are as beautiful as any I would go um, across the world to see. And then, of course, as a writer, my job takes place at my desk. And so it's been kind of a luxury to get this spend literally every day um, at my desk for the last 12 months. And you're right. Much of the time, my schedule is probably a little like yours. I'm always on a plane, permanently jet-lagged, flying from... Midsummer to midwinter in in an evening, getting a cold, realizing I've left my shaver you know, six cities back there, <laughs> and so actually I've been kind of happy to be liberated. I've, I've sort of woken up to the fact that there's a certain madness in that, and maybe mm-hmm. I was living in too accelerated a way. And I've been enjoying the fact that take things, you know, taking things at a more human pace. I've actually been flying a little more than you um, mm-hmm. these last twelve months because my mother's in California and. The rest of my family in Japan. I've been, in fact, going back and forth between Japan and California maybe three or four times um, over these months. So that's broken up the rhythm a little bit. I've been lucky in, in that regard. Um, but uh, never a shortage of things to do. And actually, I'll confess, we've been watching more tennis mm. than ever before because often when there'd be a final on, I'd be in midair or in the wrong country in the wrong time zone. Um, this time... We've been watching well last year's U.S. Open, mm-hmm. French Open, and here in Japan we were seeing a lot of Naomi Osaka the last oh, sure. couple of weeks. So I've I've enjoyed doing that because otherwise I might not get the time for that kind of
0: thing. Now uh, you talk a lot about in your in your TED talks and also in your in your writings about the the way people just move around now. I think you said in in one of your talks over two hundred million people now live somewhere where they weren't born. I believe that was what it was. Exactly. You, you compared it to, you know, Dublin, Canada, and what was it? I think Australia multiple times, and there would still be not that as a half the amount of people that actually lived in a different place from where they were born. How How has this last year, will that permanently affect that, or is this sort of like a stop, like you said, where you can you know go back to your garden, so to speak, and, and take care of things that maybe you you didn't think about taking care of, um, and, and what kind of lasting impact do you think this will have on all of us?
1: Well, I should say every prediction I've made these last 12 months has been wrong, so I have no confidence okay. in being able to see the future, but... I think of it more as a pause, and as you were saying, kind of a useful pause for us to think what in these last 12 months have we enjoyed that we could take into our lives going forward. Maybe, um, I think in, for some of us, our lives are a little bit out of control or out of balance previously, and it's been good to have a kind of time out whereby we can breathe deeply and think, uh, is this really the way we want to be living? But I think the way the world is set up, um, we can't, we, we will go back to our normal habits, whether it's a matter of your job, for example, involves flying constantly around the world, and we hope that's not going to change, and, and for family reasons, too. As you were saying, I think when I gave that talk, it was maybe 230 million people living in countries, mm-hmm. not their own, and by now, after a few more years, it's probably up to 300 million. I mean, the number is going up very, very quickly, and so most of us have loved ones or friends in other countries, and we don't want to lose the chance, if we can, to, to go and see them. I mean, it's nice to be able to talk to them on the phone or, or Zoom or Skype, but there's nothing that replaces a, um, a face-to-face encounter. So if we can find the time and resources, I, I'm sure m- most of us will want to, to keep traveling. Uh, and, and we should. You know, I think when I was a little kid, I actually was going to school by plane because my parents moved from England to California. And in those days, uh, it was cheaper to fly three times a year to England and, and go mm. to a boarding school there and to go to the local private school in in California. So from the time I was nine years old, I was flying over the North Pole six times a year to go to school and back. But I also thought, well, what an amazing opportunity. My grandparents could never have imagined this. And you and I are almost part of the first generation that can dream of being in, in Paris or Australia tomorrow. And I remember as a kid, I thought, I don't want to let this special opportunity get away from me. If if I can, I'd love to see the world because no human being has really been able to uh, until very recently.
0: Yeah, we've both been sort of lucky in that we lived the peripatetic life of uh, you, a writer, you know, uh, traveling the world and me of a tennis pro landing in new places. You said living today in Australia time. I was, by the way, living Australia time while in Connecticut, because we weren't able to actually go to Australia (laughs) because of the pandemic. So I was literally on Australia time, um, in and out of the studio in Connecticut, uh, working until the morning. And I'd wake up and I found, um, Pico, that if I, I got back to my hotel room before it actually got light out, that I could actually sleep a lot better. But once the light came up, it was 7.30 in the morning. I'm walking out of the studio, and it's completely light. I'm like, oh, this is a little more difficult to go to sleep at that time. But, you know, being able to – I've always loved traveling the world and going back to Prague or to Paris and, you know, different places I've been lucky enough to go. And, and for me, the pleasure of going to those places was walking, walking and seeing the, 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 this, how the place had changed over the years but i always love to walk around cities and obviously through your writings and your travels that you know you, that's something that obviously you you take seriously and sort of getting in to, to really know the place you're in and how it's different from where you just came from
1: exactly I've, i probably almost walked into you on one of those streets and of course places <laughs> like paris and praga Perfect for it, but absolutely. If I'm if i arrive in a in a foreign city, especially for the first time, but even on a repeat visit tomorrow, I will try and walk around it for maybe 48 hours as mm. much as possible. And I think to myself, I've just met this fascinating stranger or this fascinating old friend, and I just want her to introduce herself to me. I just want to walk around, seeing, smelling, listening to everything I can to find out who this. Person is I. I always think of cities in terms of personalities, and and um, I want to listen. I want to listen to myself as little as possible, and listen to everything around me as much as possible. And um, yes, yeah, so, you know, every now and then I'll be in a place where it's difficult to walk, and then I'll just ride the bus to the end of the line or, or take a subway. But I agree with you. I think walking is the the best possible way, and um, I have almost limitless uh, appetite and energy for that. And I know, for example, some of my friends really like good meals. And so if they mm. arrive in Paris, they'll want a three-hour dinner at a fancy restaurant. And I understand that, but I would spend those three hours walking around the Paris streets, not just <laughs> devouring its food, <laughs> but devouring the whole atmosphere and the light and the people. And the, you know, there's something about Paris that's not like anywhere else, and that's true of most places. And so, yes. And I find when I get back home and often I have to write about the places, mm. that really my strongest and most vivid impressions come in those early... 48 hours, or sometimes even just in the drive-in from the airport. And after I've been in the place for a while, then I start getting ideas about it. And I'll say, you know, Melbourne is such and such a place. And after that, I'll only really be noticing things that confirm my prejudice. So my eyes aren't wide open and my mind isn't wide open in the same way. But those early couple of days, I'm ready to be transformed. And again, I think it's such a great opportunity that most people in human history Couldn't have had so much.
0: This episode is being brought to you by Raya Eyewear. Over the last few years, a growing concern of mine has been the long-term effects of overexposure to UV rays from my extended time on court in the sun, you know, following that little yellow ball all over the globe. Well, I was also just tired of squinting on sunny days, but my fear was always that wearing sunglasses to protect my eyes would affect the way I hit the ball. Well, last year, especially during the pandemic last summer, I came across Raya, and I'm so, so glad that I did. Raya is changing the way tennis players see the game and protect their most important performance asset, their vision. All of their eyewear is handcrafted in Italy and built specifically to enhance ball contrast and provide protection from those harmful UV rays. There's no question that they help me see the ball better, they relax my eyes in the sun, and they've become an essential part of my tennis experience. Check them out at RayaEyewear.com. That's R-I-A-Eyewear.com. Use the code PATRICK to get $20 off your first pair. I promise. You will love these sunglasses. How does it feel to be one of the, the, the great writers or generation, I guess, of, of relatively recent writers that have made you know travel writing into something more than, hey, this is the place to go. I mean, you've made it more serious. You've made it so much more literary. And was that something you always wanted to do? Or was that just because of how you grew up? Is it something you sort of fell into as you became you know, a, a quote unquote professional writer?
1: you literally took (laughs) the words out of my mouth because I was going to say I fell into it in exactly what you were saying um, at the end of your question. In other words, having grown up, going back and forth to school by plane. And then I remember when I was 17, I actually spent every season Mm. in a different continent. I I spent one summer visiting all my relatives in India whom I'd never met before. And then I spent my last semester at school back in England. And then I came to... California, and I worked as a busboy in a Mexican restaurant to save up some money. And then I got into a bus and I traveled all around Central and South America for three or four months. And so by the time I arrived at college at the end of that year, I thought, well, the road is, has really probably taught me much more than any classroom would. And I think, almost as you were suggesting, it, it's so wonderful to travel f- for a living. Why don't I see if I can do that? And through no grace of my own, my, just my background has equipped me well for that. And I, I remember when I was a kid, <clears throat> I thought, well, the good thing about growing up with Indian parents and an English voice and an American green card is that everything's interesting to me. If I went to India, it was like a foreign country. Mm-hmm. And even after being based in the U.S. for a long time, the United States is still a little foreign to me and interesting. And England, I've barely spent time in since I was 21, so that too is, is fascinating for me. In the way, So I felt that growing up in this way, I couldn't take anything for granted and that everything would be interesting and that just my background had equipped me for that. It probably didn't equip me so much for staying in one place or mm-hmm. being a, a steady citizen, but, uh, but it had opened that door at least.
0: As I was listening to um, a few of your TED talks over the course of the last few weeks, I kept wanting to pull over to write down some of these great lines. You said, of course, I, was, I, I decided, you know, driving around New York City, I better not do that. But I want to quote one, one, one of your great quotes that I, did, that I did write down, and you said this. I'm a multinational soul on a multinational globe on which more and more countries are as polyglot and restless as airports. Taking planes seems as natural to me as picking up the phone or going to school. I fold up myself and carried around as if it were an overnight bag. So, so I
1: mean, I love that. Thank this you, is
0: absolutely brilliant.
1: Well, and as you were saying, you can relate to it, and more and more people, whether they're in overseas executives or in the army or in the diplomatic corps, but more and more of us are living. Uh, in that way, and uh, and it's something entirely new. In fact, I think after I wrote um, a piece along those lines, I had a brilliant editor who said, why don't you go and just live in Los Angeles Airport for two weeks and <laughs> take it, you yeah, I know, it's an yeah. exercise in masochism. It's right. the worst trip I've ever taken, but yeah. it was an interesting trip because they said, this is kind of like the, the global city of the future, that all countries of the world are coming together under a single roof, nobody necessarily knows who anybody else is or how to talk to anybody else but here it is all in one place and um, this was before 9-11 so mm. it was easier to walk in and out of terminals. Um, right. As I say it was really tiring because people are often in a state of stress at the airport but it did seem to me that cities were coming to look more and more like airports and therefore airports in some ways are like whole cities unto themselves as, as you know from you know, you've, you've spent a lot of your life living in them too I know.
0: It's a, it's absolutely amazing how you uh, put put into these great words and the and the other thing I I one of the other things that I noted in one of your talks was you you talk about you know a couple meeting and the ones of a, a, you know German African parents and another ones of yes. two different and coming together and uh you know creating some a a a you know falling in love getting married moving to New York City creating a young daughter who then has little hints of all of these different backgrounds, different cultures, you know, bringing into the world. And isn't that so amazing? And does it, I guess my my question is, does it trouble you seeing some of the, you know, things that are happening in, in our country here in the United States and even in some of the European countries, you know, with this rise of, of nationalism in, in many of these places, particularly... Uh, you know, just from being here and paying attention to the news for the last year here in the U.S., where, where where does where does that fall in, you know, your your outlook of the way you know the world is progressing, right? To so that this becomes normal, and this is seems to me as a couple of steps backwards.
1: Yeah, or a couple of steps to the side, mm-hmm. maybe. I mean, I almost feel that nationalism is on the rise because it's on the run, because its Mm. back is against the wall. And I can see that the world is moving in one direction. And a Mm -hmm. friend of mine was saying, you know, once it's out of the box, it can't be put Mm. back in the box. And people are trying to pull us back into the simpler world of the past and black and white divisions of the past. But Mm -hmm. I don't think um, it It can happen, because even if we're not moving very much, as you were saying with the example of, let's say, a a Thai man who marries a a Swedish woman, and Mm -hmm. their daughter grows up in New York City, and then that daughter is probably going to marry somebody who's got lots of cultures inside him, and then their kids will have even more cultures, and it just continues like that. Um, very, very quickly, and borders are dissolving. And I can see why that's troubling to people, because borders make the world simple and easy Mm -hmm. to read, and they give us a certain sense of security. So I think human beings will always form into tribes, and even if we can't be defined by nationalities, we'll probably find other ways to define one another um, so that we have a, a sense of who we are by having a sense of who they are. In other words, I don't think we'll ever become one great Happy family, but I do think that nationalities are less and less important and uh, you know one result of my traveling so much is that Time magazine used to send me to, to the Olympic Games, and I used mm. to be the, the main writer covering all the sports and Of course, as a sports fan what i 've delighted in over, even over the last thirty years is seeing how that 's a perfect example of globalism. When I watch mm-hmm. tennis players um, giving interviews i almost lose a sense of who is from what country because they all seem to be fluent sure. in English and they're all part of this, um, as you know much better than I, this great international network. When I was growing up as a kid, everyone in England was watching soccer. And I remember, let's say in 1969, there was one black player in the whole English First division. So out of 300 players, there was one guy who was colored. And now, of course, if you watch soccer from any country in the world, Right. Half the players, yeah, you know, almost all the players, are somewhere else in exactly that same way. Uh, or the Olympics too. Somebody who's running from Denmark is very likely to have a dark skin. So I, I don't think that can be reversed, and I can see why people really unsettled by it but uh, it's too late so. I wasn't <laughs> so, I, yeah so I am not so
0: worried uh, right. about that Oh good that's good to know because I'm glad to hear you say that I'm I'm going to remember that line and use that if you don't mind Pico nationalism <laughs> is do. nationalism is on the rise because it's on the run I love that Now I have to ask you this Thank because you. uh so yeah the when I saw the French soccer team was made up of lots of um uh black players, uh, yes. of African descent. Yes. I wasn't that surprised when I saw the Swedish team was made up of even, <laughs> yes. uh, multiple Afri- uh, black players. I was like, okay, now we definitely know the world's changed. I actually want to ask you this and I'm, and I'm going to let you go. Cause you've already given me more time than we agreed. 20 minutes. Um, which was about the Olympics because the Olympics obviously is due to happen in Japan. I, and, and by the way, I call our tennis traveling world a, tra- a traveling circus. Cause you know, like you said, one of the pleasures of being a tennis player is going back to these same places year after year and seeing the same people, you know from all different parts of the world. And it's having this kind of community of people. Obviously the Olympic games is a little bit different happens every four years. Will the Olympics happen, do you think, this year? Uh, it was supposed to happen last year in Japan. Do you think they'll be able to pull it off this year?
1: I think, and I, of course I'm really hoping they will be able to pull it off, I think it will still happen, though maybe with almost no spectators, mm-hmm. but the way, well, parts of the Australian Open sure. and other sporting events have been happening. So I don't think they can afford to cancel them, given all the money and time they have put into it. Uh, but it's a perfect example of what you were just saying with the Swedish team, because I remember um, they had the Rugby World Cup here in Japan 18 months ago. Japan was really proud of its team and its team did very well, and if you looked at the team, almost everybody in the Japanese team was from Fiji or New Zealand or somewhere else, which is why they were so good at rugby. (laughs) I think the (laughs) the face of this coming Tokyo Olympics is Naomi Osaka. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. she's really being presented as the representative of this, and when I listen to her speak and I see her sense of sportsmanship and um kind of shyness and sweetness, and even her face looks very Japanese to me, but yes. I think a lot of her strength and power must come from her Haitian father. And it's an interesting thing because as you know from having been here many times, Japan is a fairly homogeneous culture, but even they have had to accept that a half Haitian woman might be the representative of of the new Japan and especially in the context of, of the Olympics, it doesn't. I remember in I think it was the last Olympics, Japan did unusually well, but that's because nearly all their athletes were half Ghanaian, half Trinidadian, half New Zealand, whatever, and they looked pretty much like the Swedish or the, the right. French team. Probably. And Naomi Osaka
0: uh, is a is a great representation of what you you talk about. She has a Haitian dad, a Japanese mom. She was born in New Jersey, and she basically grew up her whole life in Florida. And now she's a woman of the world, yeah. rep- representing Japan and doing it as a you know a tiger of an athlete, but with this 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 calmness and this uh, humbleness that I think is what is you no know, obviously her great tennis is is part of what's uh, making her so popular, but also just her demeanor, you know that she encompasses exactly. all that in, in one person. Yes, I mean I always
1: feel watching her that of course she really really wants to win. But more than many people, she doesn't necessarily want to see the other person lose. Mm. And it's funny because you were mentioning um, how I play table tennis here in my neighborhood in Japan. And you listened to my TED Talk, I think. But one of the things that really surprised me when I started playing games here was um, that we only play doubles. Right. And we choose um, the players by lots and we change our partners every six minutes. And we play best of two sets. So that most of the time, there's, there's no winner and there's no loser. It's 1-1. It's one, one. And it's this Japanese... You were saying at the beginning how the good thing about ping pong was it taught you to be competitive. And of mm-hmm. course, in certain ways, the Japanese are learning how to be non-competitive and how if you have a group of people playing ping pong, what they really want is that everybody comes out feeling like a winner. Nobody feels that she's lost that day. Um, and when I watch Naomi Osaka... I see a bit of that spirit when she apologizes for winning. Right. And it's <laughs> right. is, is so kind to the people that she's defeated as if they've winners too. Um, so I think that's an interesting thing that you know Japan gives yeah. us a whole different vision about what competition is, is and, meant to be. And
0: I want you to know that since I listened to that, I am f- trying to figure out in my mind ways to come up with games at our junior tennis academy that my brother and I run here in New York. So I'm spending all my days when I'm not on TV working with kids and helping them, uh, well, hopefully helping them in life, but, you know, through tennis. But I, that concept is so interesting because the kids get so – we have this game called up and down. You know, if you win the game, you go up. If you lose, you go down. So I'm I'm going to be coming up, Pico, with games over the next couple of weeks that I'm going to spread to our coaches. How can we replicate what you did with ping pong in Japan? Because I think it's just – Awesome message to send to kids.
1: I love that. Actually, uh, funnily enough, right after I gave that talk, somebody came up to me and he told me that the Norwegian team had done amazingly well in the Winter Olympics, maybe mm-hmm. two or six years ago, and everybody was trying to figure out how they got the most medals per capita ever, or something like that. And it, they, they learned that after the age of 12 or something, no winners or losers in, right. in Norway. So they were using those kind of principles, and they'd come up with this incredibly winning strategy. Actually, so yeah, it'd be a fun thing for you to try out with uh, with, the, with the kids in the academy. Um, because I, you know, when I watch tennis as a you know, just ignorant amateur, I feel that most of the game is is mental, mm-hmm. and of course, really wanting to win is a great asset. But I wonder if. Doing something in the other direction might give you an advantage, too, as you said, in terms of calmness or keeping control of your emotions.
0: Well, well you There are s-
1: probably certain players who have yeah. done really well for that very reason by, by keeping their uh, heart rate very, very low.
0: Exactly. Well, as you said in some of your talks also, be c- going inward and some solitude and being within yourself and therefore being calm and not as jumpy can be a very good thing and we've certainly all been in some ways forced to do this but i want to tell you pico it's been an absolute pleasure to um to speak with you i really appreciate you doing it and uh i've already i've I've learned even more than i thought that i could and paying attention to you and all you've done and uh listening to your words of wisdom i hope i get to meet you one day in person
1: I hope so, too, Patrick. Thank, thank you very much, and thank you for everything you've given to the game and everything you've given to us to follow the game on TV. So it's really been a delight to
0: talk to you. And, and I'll look forward to uh, when we can get back to some sort of normalcy your, and reading and hearing about your next adv- adventures around the world.
1: Good. I hope I'll see you at the Olympics one of these years. <laughs>
0: okay, take care. Pico Iyer. everyone, thank on you. Holding Court. Thank you so much. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.